Welcome to the Marshall Graham Interviews. Sorry to be posting this late. I had some travel issues with Southwest Airlines, but the upside of those travel issues was I got to stop by Oakland Park. As I was driving back from San Antonio, I threw my kids and wife on a plane back, and I drove back. I was at Oakland to break in the new year, and on New Year's Eve, the last race at Oakland Park, I got to see 10 Strike Racing's first-timer, Ian Clover, a Liz Crow purchase for $55,000, a looking at Lucky, break his maiden at first asking. Super excited whenever you have a two-year-old colt that breaks his maiden and has a route pedigree. It's it's hard not to be excited about it. So we're going to dream a little bit. Of course, this time last year, I was dreaming about a horse named Rocket Dog, and he got beaten in the Gunrunner Stake by Epicenter and Rich Strike despite being three to five. So at least for a time, uh, we had a horse that was favorite over the uh, probable three-year-old champion and Kentucky Derby winner. And uh, so, look, uh, that horse has yet to break its maiden. So I'm going to savor and I'm going to dream about Ian Clover. And uh, again, he was a Liz Crow purchase and Liz Crow is our agent. She's going to talk about her role as an agent buying horses, but I really brought her on to talk about confirmation and, uh, you know, the difference physically between a router and sprinter, between a turf and dirt horse. These are things I know nothing about. I don't even pretend to. It's not an area that that sort of I plan to uh, try to to learn more about because it's it's something I just know I don't have the skills. So I, I lean on someone like Liz if, if I'm at the track with her. Or if I'm, you know, watching the broadcasts, uh, someone like Maggie Wolfendale, she's the best at this. Seeing her uh, in the paddock at the Naira races, uh, break down those horses, give me information about them. Uh, you know, I'm a, I won't make a bet on two-year-old races without at least getting some insight from Maggie. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Liz. Uh, once again, we are brought to you by Millridge Farm. Millridge Farm stands Aloha West in Ask Performance. I was reading an article the other day by the Pollock support Joe Nevels on the um, on the all va- all value sires, cheaper sires that are worth breeding to that offer value, and uh, he had Oscar Performance on his second team. So anyway, check out Oscar Performance. Appreciate once again Millridge Farm and their sponsorship of these interviews. All right, I'm happy to be joined by Agent Liz Crow. Uh, Liz, tell us a little bit about how you got into the game and and ultimately became an agent. Uh, So I started like a lot of young people. I started riding horses when I was like six years old. My parents took me out to, um, I lived in Bethesda, Maryland, not really a horse capital of the world, but um, my parents took me out to ride horses. I fell in love with it. Um, My grandparents uh, were kind of racing fans, loved going to Oakland and Louisiana Downs. And and they took me to the races when I was, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old. And um, I loved the, the idea of gambling, kind of picking winners um, and actually getting, you know, putting your $2 down and getting, you know, six bucks back was very exciting when you're eight, eight or nine years old. Um, and so I loved horses. And then I loved the combination of attempting to, to pick, uh, you know, the winner of a race. So gambling as well. And that kind of led me down the path of wanting to get involved in horse racing as a profession. Uh, I went to University of Louisville and did their equine business program. Um, that was a really eye-opening experience. And I had a lot of professors there that really helped me find good internships. And I worked at Pimlico and and, um, got to experience the Preakness with Curlin and Street Sense. And then I I went and worked at Churchill and their racing office, worked for Jonathan Shepard, went out to California and worked for Owen Hardy. Those are two trainers. um, So I actually worked on the backside. 
And then I ultimately ended up back in Lexington, worked for Pete Bradley, and he's a bloodstock agent and got four years of experience with him. Um, Marshall, you call that like my graduate school. So that was kind of like I went to graduate school, worked for an agent, realized that I loved the sales aspect of the industry, and then went out on my own in 20, end of 2015 with 10 Strikes Help as my main, you know, main client when I left and been out on my own since 2015 and it's 2022. And um, yeah, so that's kind of well, the I'm am- trajectory. I'm, I'm amazed it's been that long. It, just, it doesn't seem like that long ago. Well, tell us to, just again, for, for my students who may not know that much about the industry itself, tell us about what it means to be an agent, what you do, you know, how your work day is and, and um, it, you know, and, and how your work calendar is over, across the year. Yeah, sure. So being an agent, I say, is kind of, a you know, officially buying and selling of racehorses uh, is what we do. But it's kind of like being a talent scout, I guess, for like a baseball team or a football team. Um, you're going out and looking at young athletes and trying to pick them out. You know, it's kind of like going to kindergarten class and trying to pick out LeBron James um, when he's, you know, in kindergarten. It's really tough to do. But as they get older, it gets a little bit easier. Um, so weanling sales, yearling sales, two-year-old sales are generally the three main ways that you buy horses. And obviously weanlings when they're less than a year old, yearling is when they're one-year-old and you know, two-year-old self-explanatory, they're two-year-olds. So you go to those sales, um, they're all over the country, kind of Kentucky, California, Maryland, New York, and Florida are the main states. And you will sort through anywhere from, you know, 400 horses to 1200 or, or even the Keeneland September sale, you'll sort through 4,000 horses there. And you'll select the ones that you like based on a physical um, look at them. So they'll walk them on a shank, which is just walking them up and down a pathway. And you're judging their confirmation and their athleticism and how they move and how they present themselves. And then you'll look at their pedigree page and kind of match those two things up and see, you know, what you think their value is. And if you think, you know, you can afford them. So you'll have a budget from a client, which is like, they'll say, buy me a $50,000 horse, try to stay in that range. And so obviously you can't buy a horse by Tappet or Curlin um, for 50,000 that you're going to like physically. So you kind of have to match those two things up to get the horse into the price range that your client has go to the auction ring, put your hand up, uh, purchase the horse, and then they head to the races and hopefully, hopefully do well. So at the biggest of these sales, the Keeneland sale with about 4,000 horses, how do you break that down into sort of a manageable size for you to look at the horses that you want to look at? And and how many of those 4,000 will you ultimately, you know, look at, bid on and buy? Yeah. So the Keeneland September sale is, is a pretty cool, really a cool experience. You know, if anyone ever gets to go up and see it in person, it's kind of the Mecca of, you know, being an agent or being really an owner in the, in the purchasing end of the business. So it's 4,000 of quote unquote, the best horses in the world, which are bred mainly in Kentucky, which people consider to be the best place to breed horses will come to this sale. It is the busiest two weeks of my year. And I have a team of about five or six people And we break the sale down. Unfortunately, you can only look at about 125 horses to 150 horses a day yourself. There's just from the time they show horses from 8 to 5 p.m., that's about the most horses you can get through yourself. So you'll split that up among people on your team that you trust. 
you'll shorten that down. And then from there, you'll pick the horses that you liked for physical reasons out of that group. You'll go back and look at those again. And then what I talked about earlier, you'll kind of figure out the budget of what the, you think your horses that you like will bring. Um, we'll have meetings at night in our conference room and kind of discuss and debate which ones we want to um, vet. So we'll have the veterinarian go around and vet these horses. And so a lot of them will fall off the list for vet problems and vet things that you think could become potential vet problems when they race. And then you'll actually go bid on them the next day. Um, so it's really kind of an insane process during those two weeks, just because 4,000 horses is so many horses, but it's it's also the place where you'll see um, if you're watching TVG or something, they'll stamp like a Keeneland September grad. It's the most common place that um, you'll see Derby winners, Oaks winners, you know, a lot of, a lot of the top horses in the world come out of that sale uh, and at all different price points, you know, it's not just the million dollar horses. Um, it's all the way, you know, 25,000 up to a million, uh, sometimes two, two plus million dollars. And um so it's, it's an important sale from my perspective to get those horses purchased. Well, it's also, you know, if you think about it, it's about a fifth of the full crop goes through the Keeneland September sale. So, um, so it, it really represents a big cross section and a cross section of some of the, the best bred, you know, and best confirmation horses out there as well. But it's a big part of the population. It, it really sort of, there's a separation between, you know, breeders and then end users fewer and fewer homebreds. Uh, what do you sort of, what do you, you know, like your process of, you say you look at a horse, 125 to 150, uh, I guess you pull out the stall and watch it, watch how it walks, move, kind of what are you looking for? Yeah. So you'll, you'll go to each consigner. So it's kind of like a, uh, each, per, each consigner is like a, its own shop, if you will. That person either bred those horses or prepped those horses um, or had them on their farm for, for several, several months. And so that person will present a group of horses. So it'd be like, they'll have four horses up to 30 or 40 horses. So you'll go there, you'll fill your card out. You'll say, you know, I'd like to look at these, these 40 horses. They'll pull them out for you. They come out. And the very first thing I'm looking at is how do they present themselves? You know, do they stand up with professionalism? Mentality is a big part of the game. And it's, you know, something that at the NFL combine, you can do an IQ test and you can do an interview for athletes. And that helps you whether they're going to be a good teammate and put their effort into um, playing a sport with horses. Obviously you can't do that. So you're assessing the things that are not, um, you're not able to actually communicate. So it'll be, you know, if they spook or act really silly when they come out of their stall, that'll be something that you ding them for. Um, and then from there, you're looking at how they move. Um, do they have a big overreach? So it's their hind leg. When their front leg moves and their hind leg moves, does the hind leg overstep with the front leg? And um, it's kind of a complicated thing to explain unless you're watching it in person, but it's just how big is their stride going to be is really what you're looking for. You know, you're looking to see if you think they're turf or dirt and long or short. So if they're sprinters or routers um, or they prefer the turf or the dirt. So kind of the different ways that you can look at that is the strength through their hip um, and their hind leg. If they have a really big, powerful hip and hind leg, they're typically going to be more dirt horses. Uh, if they have more muscling over their top line and through their neck and shoulder, they're going to be able to power through that dirt surface, that deep dirt surface better. And if they're turf horses, they, they can be lighter and you often want them to be lighter because they, they need to get across the top of the turf a lot quicker. You don't want them to 
kind of pound and land really heavy into the turf before they take off again. You want them to skip across the top of it. So they will be smaller, lighter horses. And another thing that people really look at is the pastern length, which is the bone from their foot to their ankle and how long that is. If the pastern is long, typically people say that they're turf horses um, versus dirt because um, they have more flexibility in that bone and therefore they can get into the turf a little bit easier than they can on the dirt. Um, and the other th last thing is the hoof size. If the hoof is more made like a pie, really big and uh, kind of thin sole, then they can grab the turf better. If it's a smaller cuppier foot, then they typically look more like a, they would prefer the dirt. So you're kind of analyzing all those things. When you first look at the horse, you have about a minute and 30 seconds per horse to make your decision, whether you would like to see that horse again or knock them off the list. So it's, you mainly aren't really looking at pedigree at that point. You're kind of just looking at the physical because there's not enough time to analyze both. And then later you'll go back and rethink through your notes and, um, you know, say, did that horse's pedigree match up with the way it looked, et cetera. Well, let's stick, since you've already jumped to it, let's stick into to the turf and dirt, turf versus dirt angle, because ostensibly I want to talk about what makes a turf horse versus a dirt horse uh, from a handicapping perspective. Uh, when you're looking at these horses, you know, you're evaluating them turf or dirt in part independent of pedigree. Is that, is that uh, would that be true? You'll see a horse and say that's a turf horse. Uh, and, and not be swayed by the pedigree, for example, or how much do you think of it as pedigree and how much of it is confirmation? So I have kind of made my living and, and um, reputation on not paying attention to the pedigree. I think it can really sway you either to dislike or like the horse or auto automatically put a price tag on the horse. So obviously if a tap, it comes out out of a grade one winner, your mentality is this is a good horse and you're not really getting a clean assessment of its physical. So I try hard not to judge the physical and the pedigree too much. I try to separate them. Um, because you can just get swayed, you know, one direction or another. It's like watching, walking into a Mercedes dealership versus a Kia deal dealership. You're going to be swayed, you know, that this is a high-end top dollar horse when maybe it's physically not. So I try not to match those two things up too much. The thing that I do do pay attention to though, is the turf dirt angle. Like if I'm looking at a declaration of war cult or a English channel or something that's very turfy, and the horse looks like a dirt horse. I don't know if I necessarily like that too much because you kind of want the physical and the pedigree to match. You know, you don't really want to buy a declaration of war colt unless it turns into war of will or something very unusual and think that you're going to get a dirt horse. You know, that's probably a good way to get yourself into trouble. So I would say physical is the most important thing to me. And then afterwards, you know, pedigree to me dictates how much you're going to have to spend on that horse. Um, it can really help you, you know, analyze based on stud fee, what the mare has done, what the mare has produced, um, the mare's produce record as in the foals she's already produced and what those horses have brought at public auction can really help you decide what you think that horse is going to bring in the sales ring and whether you think that that physical is going to match up with what you have to spend to get that horse purchased. Now you've also worked, you've worked, you know, the domestic sales, the yearling sales at Saratoga and at, um, in Lexington, but you've also worked uh, Tattersall sales uh, uh, overseas. And um, when you're overseas looking at horses, are, are just pretty much everyone they roll out looks like a turf horse, or do you occasionally see a dirt horse over there that uh, is masquerading as a turf horse? 
Yeah, it's um, it's funny, you know, that you really have to adjust your eye when you go over there because it's just it's very, very different. They're um their horses are smaller than ours. They're just not as big um and not as tall as our horses. And that's turf, you know, typically turf horses are a bit smaller than dirt horses. So that makes sense. But your eye just has to adjust down, almost scale down. You know, Aunt Pearl is a filly that that we bought over there at Tattersalls, and she, you know, won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies in 2020, and she looked like a dirt horse a little bit. She had a bit of a, a strong hip and hind leg, and she always breathes good on the dirt as a result. And Brad did always think that she, you know, not that she could run on the dirt. She probably could have broken her maiden or won an allowance race, but she was really bred to be a turf horse. And that's, you know, that's where we ultimately ran her. And she, she won um, all her races at two on the turf. She had a bit more of a strong looking top line. Like I talked about earlier, more muscle through her shoulder and her hip than your average turf horse, but still ultimately the pedigree won out there. And she was, you know, a turf horse. What, um, is there any, when you're looking at horses, is there any way that this is, as we talk about turf and dirt, is there any way to, to gauge, Hey, this is going to be a sprinter. Hey, this is likely to be a router under the, oh, sort definitely. Of, so what yeah. are the, what are the sort of confirmational differences in those cases? So you look at the length from their withers to their hip, if it's shorter, um, they're typically sprinters. So that's pretty easy to remember. If you're looking at a more short coupled horse, they're typically more sprinters, you know, Marshall, you love Munnings. Munnings is typically more of a dirt sprint sire than he is a dirt route sire. And his horses are generally more compact, really muscular over their hips and hind legs. And so if the horse is longer and almost more gangly, they're going to typically be a route horse. You want size if they're going to be a route horse. You don't typically see too many really small dirt route horses. Like mine, that bird comes to mind. That was kind of a small you know, dirt, he was an anomaly, you know, not really. Something. Yeah, a, a fleet Alex, I think was also really small. Yeah. Like you'll get, you'll definitely get them like John Henry, you know, was really small or so, you know, but that the breed was so different back then versus what it is now. Now, um, as Americans, we are breeding more for commercial purposes than we are for racing purposes. Like you mentioned, most people now breed and they go through the sales ring. They don't breed to race. I mean, it's almost rare now to breed to race. Um, there's definitely still operations that do it, but most people are breeding to try to, you know, make big bucks in the sales ring. And the, the what people pay for in the sales ring is a big, lengthy, muscular, two-turn dirt horse. And that's what people are looking for. And, and turf is almost, even though there's tons of money on the turf um, in America, there's plenty of big purse races like the Belmont Oak series and the, you know, the, the triple crown series up there for, for three-year-old turf fillies and Colts. We just want dirt horses and we want dirt sires. I mean, you know, bricks and mortar, I'm getting off a little bit on a tangent here, but bricks and mortar is a good example of you know, horse of the year. Um, pretty well-bred was absolutely brilliant horse in America and didn't have a spot to stand stud here. You know, we sent him to Japan. And so um, that's a good example of, you know, we just aren't looking for turf as much over here anymore. Um, War of Will, who I mentioned earlier, who won the Preakness the year, you know, we had Warriors Charge in, run fourth in there. Um, he couldn't sell at the Keeneland September sale. Nobody wanted him. He RNA'd. He went to Europe. He went to the Breeze Up sales there. He sold there and he came back here. You know, we didn't want him. Agents aren't looking for those turf horses as much as you're looking for, for dirt 
um, just because that seems to be the direction that, you know, our state of our breed is, is headed is more dirt. Well, I guess let, like when you're filling out orders for Keeneland September, what percentage of your orders are for dirt horses? Well, I, I've still to date, not sure I've had anyone ever say to me, go find a dirt colt ever, or sorry, a turf colt, excuse me. Um, I've never had anybody say, go find me a turf colt. Um, it's just not something people really want, mainly because if a turf colt can't run, they're worth, you know, zero dollars. And as you know, turf racing is a limited time of the year that you can run. In New York, you can only run, you know, from really the beginning of May or end of April, I should say, through, you know, September, October, really whenever, sometimes November, but you never know if the weather turns really bad, you're kind of out of luck and it rains off the turf a lot. And you'll see those races that are rained off the turf. And you're, you're kind of, you know, out of luck if you have a horse that really can't run off the turf. Um, and you're often spotting the horse around and losing days of when you can run them. I guess that that's, um, you know, part of the reason that we're so, so oriented. It's also, you can't, there's no such thing as a cheap turf claimer, right? (laughs) Cause they don't, they don't want to tear up the turf. So for example, Keeneland doesn't write claiming races on the turf. Right. And, uh, and for most tracks for any, for most tracks of any sort of standing their minimum minimum claiming race on the turf can be between 25 and 40 grand right versus you can you know nickel claimers on the dirt so that that makes a difference as well uh, tell us a little bit about the the two-year-old sales and how those work those are really interesting and um so you'll see at this keeneland september sale something called pin hookers will are typically Two-year-old consigners that um, live in Ocala, Florida, that have farms there, will come up to Kentucky and look for horses that they can purchase and then bring to the two-year-old sale. And, and this is something that I've done, you know, since um, I started on my own in 2015. And that's uh, have a pinhook venture where you buy these horses as yearlings. Generally, you try to look for something that is undervalued. So you'll put a price on a horse. This horse is worth 100000 If the horse brings 80 or 90, you'll go ahead and buy it. Um, and you'll take it to the two-year-old sales. So mainly that's what the two-year-old sales are comprised of is pinhook horses, people that have gone to the yearling sales and tried to buy undervalued yearlings. They'll have to go to the two-year-old sale to, to jump through all the hoops of the two-year-old sale. You have to breeze an eighth of a mile um, or a quarter of a mile. And it's, it's timed. Typically, you like to see the horse go in 10 flat or 10 and one. So 10 seconds and, and one fifth of a second. Or if it's a quarter, you know, you're looking for like 21 flat, uh, 20 and four, something like that. And all the agents go down with their stopwatches um, and they, you know, clock the gallop outs and watch the way the horse moves and how efficiently they get over the the surface. And Ocala is mainly where these sales take place. There's one in um, South Florida Gulfstream on the dirt track there. And there's one at Timonium on the dirt track there in Maryland. But everything else is on this poly track surface in Ocala. So actually, speaking of turf, you can get, you know, fooled every now and again by buying a horse that you think is dirt, but then it's really turf because the poly track plays a bit more in favor of turf horses than it does dirt horses. So anyway, you'll go down there. There'll be about, you know, I'm actually headed to the sale on Sunday at OBS and it's the biggest two-year-old sale of the year. There'll be 1,500 horses in that sale. And um, they'll all breeze over a six-day period, and they'll all get timed, and everyone will time their gallop outs and watch the way they move, and then you'll make your short list from there. You'll go back to the barns and review them physically after you've seen them breeze. But typically, there's a higher, not injury rate, 
during the sale because it's a very clean sale. Nobody gets hurt while they're breezing because it's such a short, just eighth of a mile breeze. But after the sale, they can get pretty jammed up and jarred up because you're asking them to, to accelerate such a quick, um, you know, 10 seconds in such a short period of time when they're young, you know, it's still April of their two-year-old's year. So it, it can be a little bit of a high attrition rate of these horses actually making it to the races in a quick manner. Um, but also really, really good horses come out of the sale. Medina Spirit um, came out of the two-year-old sales. You know, Lady Rocket, who's in the Madison on, on Saturday at Keeneland, came out of the two-year-old sale. Um, and so there's a lot of really, really good horses that come out of the sale. Tell us a little bit about uh, some of these nice horses you bought. You bought two champions, and why don't we just talk about those two? Uh, tell me about Monmore Girl, I mean, Kentucky Oaks winner, one of your first purchases. You know, tell me what you saw about her and, and, and the whole process. Yeah, so like we were talking about turf and dirt. Um, I really go to the sale with dirt in mind, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Um, some people, I didn't finish my answer to your last question about turf, whether I ever shop for turf horses for people. People do like turf fillies. I guess it's because you can breed them and they're worth, you know, they're still worth more money than, um, than a dirt, a, a, sorry, a turf colt is, but I'm really looking for dirt, dirt horses when I go to the sale. And that's, that's my main focus. And it's just because you can get paid more, more money and they have higher purse earnings. Um, like you can win something like the Kentucky Oaks. So Monomoy girl, when I first saw her stuck out to me as a dirt horse right away, you know, she had that really strong hip and Gaskin and hind leg and all the muscles through her hind leg were, were really kind of robust, even for a young horse. And she stood very straight behind. You want to see when you draw a line from the top of their hip down to their hock, and then down to their ankle, you want it to almost be a straight line. If the hock sits out behind the hip, then it's typically turf. Um, so that was one more confirmation note I didn't make earlier. Um, so her, she had this really beautiful straight hind leg and she had this great mentality. I mean, nothing bothered her for a one-year-old horse. You know, she acted like a pro. Um, she acted a lot older than her age and um, was just really relaxed and laid back and, and very, very athletic looking. Um, the other thing about turf versus dirt with, with um, the way they walk at a yearling sale Typically the overstep I talked about earlier, turf horses will have like a much bigger overstep. Route horses will have a much bigger overstep. Dirt horses that can jump out of the gate and in three steps be going, you know, to the lead, which is something our trainer, Brad Cox is obsessed with. That's all he seems to want is the horse that goes to the lead, the dirt horse that goes to the lead. They have to have that straight hind leg and they have to be able to get out of the gate and get to the lead very quickly. And that's power and strength and muscle over their top line. So she had all those things and she was really a speed horse. You know, she kind of got to the lead or was always on or near the lead and wasn't like a come from behind horse like Zenyatta or something like that. So, um, yeah, that was what, that was kind of what stood out to me on her. She cost a hundred thousand because she was by Tapazar. Tapazar was a very un, you know, appealing stallion at the time. Her pedigree page was a very cheap pedigree page at the time she was out of a a mare named Dramat who couldn't run and um, she hadn't produced anything at that point. She'd produced two very slow horses and Monomoy Girl was her third full. Um, so that was why she only cost a hundred. I think if she was by Tappet, you know, or Curlin or something like that, she's probably a $600,000 horse. So it was just, that was why she was able, able to be affordable. So was that the first horse you, you, you bought as an agent? No, I bought a couple others in Saratoga, like two others, one to Pinhook and one to Race, but like that was a month earlier. 
that was the first one I actually signed my own name on, like Liz Crow agent. They actually spelled my name wrong on the ticket. <laughs> so that's, that's always a funny story. But um, the same day I bought Tatters to Riches. So it was a great day that that horse was the horse we bought for 60,000 and sold him for a million at the OBS April sale, like six months later. So we, we bought a horse for 60,000, owned him six months and sold him for a million. So that was pretty cool. Same, same day that I purchased Monomoy Girl. Well, I was looking at Monomoy Girl was 1611. And then yep. you yep. bought the Uncle Mo do your job <laughs> 1738 for 160. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know whether this is apocryphal or not, but I, but I tell the story now that, that 10 Strike had their choice of, of which two, and we chose the Uncle Mo with the better pedigree over the Tafazar, and the rest is kind of history. But uh, Yeah, uh, but Do Your Job was like one of my favorite horses I bought that year because her pedigree exploded. If you remember, like McCracken oh, yeah. showed oh, up yeah. in the pedigree, and, and she was actually outworking Monomoy Girl a bit you know, in the beginning, I think we're not saying that she was going to win the Oaks or something like that, you know, but still she looked very, very promising and unfortunately uh, got injured. And yeah, so that was like it. you yeah. said, the rest is history. The rest is history. Uh, and then again, Monomore Girl sells for, for nine, nine and a half million, a couple of years later, British Idiom, uh, which is another, this is a bargain basement purchase that, that won a championship for your owners. But uh, tell me a little bit about British Idiom. So I bought her at the October sale um, and I love the October sale because that's like bargain basement shopping 101. Um, it's kind of the weird eclectic group of horses that are left over at the end of the yearling season. It's the last yearling sale of the year. And so it's kind of the, the yearling sale where everybody um, dumps kind of the horses they couldn't get sold throughout the year. So she was um, by flashback, flashback I don't even think Stan's stud anymore. I don't know if he's standing for free in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but the point is she had an even way worse pedigree than bottom white girl. She was beautiful though. I, I really loved her physically. And, and you're kind of, if you're catching on here, the, the way I've done well is buying these really, really good looking horses, but, but have these pedigrees that aren't worth like $3,000. So that was, that was British idiom. She, she sold for 40,000. She was out of a Mr. Segaguchi mare. And um, her pedigree was just atrocious. So um, that was that was what made me like her was just I knew I could afford her. And um, we actually got to run her in one of those 45,000 and under maiden special weights in Saratoga, because if you, you know, sometimes if you buy a horse for 45,000 or under, they have that condition maiden special weight that you can run in. So that's how she broke her maiden. Um, and that's a fun one, you know, when you can buy one for like 40 and have them turn into a champion, that's that's the dream. Well, I, I don't think flashback ever threw anything else. And he now stands in, in South Korea. So there you uh, go. Yeah. That's where he, so belongs. <laughs> he, he, he is, um, he is somewhere, but not, uh, not much. So when you, so you knew pretty early on, you wanted to be in the racing industry. You obviously moved from, you know, grew up in suburban Maryland and then went to college at the university of Louisville. Did you envision becoming an agent or you just wanted to figure out where to work in the industry? How did you go from Louisville sort of making this conclusion? Hey, I want to be an agent. I wanted to try everything. I really thought about applying for the Darley Flying Start program, which is a great two-year program that takes you around the world, takes you to Dubai and Australia and England and Ireland. And it's a great program. Um, I had talked to the you know, advisor at that program several times about applying, but I was kind of one of those kids that um, I grew up in Bethesda and I got a really great opportunity to travel a lot as a kid. So I, I got to go to a lot of really great places when I was young, 
my parents made sure I was well-traveled. And I just felt like the, the end of the industry I needed to go explore was mucking stalls and hot walking. So that was the dire- direction. It was a hard decision, but I packed up everything I owned in a U-Haul, which wasn't much, and uh, drove to California and um, got a job hot walking for Owen Hardy. And I just, I started, you know, turning left. So you just walk in a circle, pretty much cool them out after they're done galloping or done breezing in the morning. Um, Just listen to little odds and ends that you hear around the barn and you get paid about $300 a week um, and live in a tack room. So it's like the lowest of the low. My parents are like, wait a minute, we paid for a college degree. So you could, you know, hot walk (laughs) courses. What is wrong with this? Um, And then I just worked my way up. You know, I think I was found useful enough to be in the office and become his bookkeeper and kind of do the computer work and updates to to owners and stuff like that. And I eventually worked my way up to being an assistant trainer, which was great. I got to um, ride the pony in the morning and um, take, you know, we had a horse named Victor's Cry, who won a grade one. When I worked for him, we had Well-Armed, who won the Dubai World Cup. Owen had quite a few nice horses back then. Um, he had uh, Colonel John, you know, won the mm-hmm. Travers. And um, so we, you know, I got to be around some really high-end horses. While I really needed to do that for my career, I hated almost every minute of getting up at three o'clock in the morning, seven days a week. It just, you don't have a life. I mean, you can't even book a doctor's appointment or um, you want to see, you know, your cousin's wedding or your grandfather, you know, funeral or something like that. Forget it. It's a seven day a week. Unless you are physically in the hospital, you show up to that job and you're there. So I just didn't want to live my life like that. It was a great experience and so good for a young kid, especially right out of college when you don't really have anything tying you down. I couldn't replace that experience for anything, but I guess once I knocked that out and said, okay, I don't want to be a trainer and I don't want to be on the racetrack. I said, okay, let me move back to Lexington and explore other things. And in college, I had done a night watch for foaling mares, found that to be pretty boring. It's, it's a lot of waiting around for these babies to be born and not a lot of action. Um, and you really don't get to go to the races. You know, you're, you're not at the racetrack. That is such a separate world when you foal mares. Um, and then I had done yearling prep, which again is, is really tedious and you're not really at the races. So I was thinking, how do I get the racetrack in, involvement without the 3 a.m. mornings? Um, and I went and worked a September sale for free for Pete Bradley when I first moved back. Um, I just followed him around, essentially shadowed him. And, and that's when it felt like it clicked because the whole purpose of being at that sale was to pick out something that would be at the races. And I thought that's really cool. You know, you're only a step or two away from having these horses at the racetrack. And so, um, you know, and also part of your job is to go to the track and get to go sit with owners. And I get a lot of young kids that call me though, and they kind of have a different idea of what being an agent really is. It's not dressing up and going to the races. In fact, that's like (laughs) 2% of your job. You know, you watch a lot of racing. Like I'm often watching it on my phone at a sale or something like that, but it's, it's hard work. You know, the, the moments of fun, like finding, you know, Monomoy Girl or British Idiom, those moments are grinding. Those moments come from getting up at, you know, six o'clock in the morning, going to the sale 14 days in a row and working, you know, 20 hour days to sort through 4,000 horses. So it's not an easy job by any means, as far as hours go, but you can at least have a life in between sales, which I think is nice, you know, um, cause racing isn't really an industry that is too kind to your personal life. Well, the, the other thing about like, you know, being an agent, I guess people would assume that, wow, Montemoy Girl sold for nine and a half million. Well, you as an agent, what made five grand off Montemoy Girl <laughs> yeah. and made two grand off British Idiom. 
Is that that's right. yeah? And I so, split that with my business partner, so you know, I made like it's not enough to even pay my shortlisters that um, help me shortlist at the sales. It's like it doesn't even cover that. But um, I did start a sales consignment for that reason, and the so this just as I mentioned earlier, being a consigner, you you know stand out there and sell these horses, and you get five percent when you sell them. So um, we did get to sell Monomoy Girl, so we did get to. Yeah, make- well, and, I mean, the other part of it is, I mean, those horses allowed you now to be at a point where you can turn away business, right? So that people call, you know, you know, part of it is about building your client base and, and you're in a good position now because of those horses, right? I mean, that's- Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing about being an agent is like, you're the easy target too. Um, you don't want to work for people like you just said that kind of make you that easy target. It's really hard. Um, we didn't talk about this yet, but the percentages of buying a good horse, it's like less than 1% to buy a grade one winner. Your odds of going to the sale and picking out a grade one winner are less than 1%. That's like, you know, you might have a better chance of getting struck by lightning. So it's really hard. And, and nobody knows that better than you that's been in the game a long time is that, you know, coming across a nice horse is just damn near impossible sometimes. Um, and so obviously no one assumes Brad Cox can't train. So they say Liz picked out a bad horse or, you know, if the horse can really run nice owners will give you credit, but some guys kind of forget because it was two years ago when you picked the horse out. So you're not necessarily on the forefront of their mind when they win, but you are on the forefront of their mind when they lose. (laughs) So um, that can be a negative. And like you said, I try to, I try to um, work for owners that understand the game, understand the statistics of the game that you're never going to beat the statistics. You know, it's like, you're never going to be ahead at the windows, as they say. You're never going to be ahead buying horses, and um, it's it's really hard. But just just real quick to, to to tie in the agent and the PPs when you're you know your class is looking at the PPs, they often they'll have the sales price you know of the horse and the PPs, which I'm sure you guys have discussed. But that is the typically the last place that horse is sold. So you'll see you'll be able to see you know if you see a tappet that sold for fifty thousand that's like well below the sale price, you'll, you'll know that that horse was physically not a very appealing horse at the sale. And then, you know, you'll see a one for a million that's in for a claiming tag or something like that. But, you know, that's kind of the agent line. That's how you can um, almost relate the agent to the PPs as you'll see the sale price. Well, and that's important to point out the sales price doesn't mean much once they start running, once they've established a record of their own. So, you know, in maiden races for lightly race horses, maybe it means something past a certain point, the million dollar horse may be running for a tag, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just, uh, it just, it just happens. I mean, when you're picking out horses, uh, when they're yearlings or two-year-olds, a lot of change can happen, right? So, uh, um, and, uh, and of course, you know, you can't even evaluate the mental aspect. So there's a lot of, you know, their willingness to do it, whether they have ability or not. Well, that was like amazing rockets, a really good example. That's a horse we bought for 500 and, and he's by into mischief. And he was probably one of the most beautiful horses I think I've ever seen at public auction. I mean, he was just physically um, beast, but he has no heart. I mean, he doesn't want to win for any level. And it's kind of like an employee that doesn't want to show up on time and doesn't want to, you know, pull their own weight. You know, those, those, those employees need to be fired. So, you know, those horses need to be put in for a tag and that's pretty much how, unfortunately, part of the game. Yeah. And maybe, you know, maybe he will, uh, you know, maybe he'll find uh, himself at some point and be successful. I doubt it. But uh, I do think <laughs> that, you know, look, I mean, you talked about the batting average as an agent. It's, uh, you know, a lot of horses are, are slow, right? And a lot of horses maybe may not make it to the races. And so it is, you know, it's just, I think in terms of what we see as horse players or even fans, uh, it's uh, it's sort of jarring to be involved in the game and to know the the sort of the number of horses that just don't make it to the races, just too slow to make it to the races or get hurt 
or the ones that just aren't, um, you know, aren't very quick and end up in claiming races. So even the, even with the best agents and best trainers, you know, we still, we still end up with slow horses at, uh, sometimes. Uh, no, we, most we, of the time. You're yes, most of the time. And then we, the and then the fast sound, <laughs> the fast sound ones we learned to really enjoy. Anyway, look, Liz, I appreciate everything. I appreciate you joining me uh, today. Of course. Thanks for having me.